Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Yes, the four-year-olds stole all the widows to feed them breakfast. So if you're a widow and you haven't eaten breakfast, now's your chance. Last week, we started chapter 3. We returned to the divisions that were in the church. There were those who were saying, I'm a follower of Apollos. There were those who were saying, I'm a follower of Paul. And Paul said, no, we're all followers of Christ. In fact, he says, there are truths that I want to share with you, but I can't. I can't because you're immature. You're immature because you're still worldly. And I know you're still worldly because there's still jealousy and quarrels going on amongst the members of the body. So he begins a discussion that he, Paul, Apollos, are simply servants. They are simply workers with God. One will plant the seed, one will water the seed, but ultimately God causes everything to grow. Any growth that occurs in your spiritual life is a result of the work of God. God uses human beings. God uses people in your life. It may be a pastor. It may be a minister. It may be the next-door neighbor. It may be a friend. God uses people, but God causes the growth to occur. So... Paul used two analogies. He talked about the field, where we talked about the planting and the watering. And then at the uh, end of verse, well, in verse 9, he says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So there's two analogies, the field and the building. We finished off the field last week. And so today we're going to talk about the building. Paul says, by the grace God has given me, this is verse 10, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. Notice where he begins. By the grace of God, I'm doing something. He always begins with God's grace. He is not a builder, a servant of God, because he is something special. He is a servant of God because God has given him grace to do a task, a mission. He has given him responsibility because of his grace. And because of his grace, he is building as an expert builder would build. Which brings the obvious question, how does an expert builder build? And you could contrast that with how the non-expert builder builds something. <laughs> Any of you ever seen a non-expert builder? <laughs> I had a, uh, actually it was a friend of my father's and he built, a, he had a very nice townhome built and he, this guy's a perfectionist, Okay. He said, I went out one time to watch them building my townhouse. The guy was framing it with a chainsaw. 
And I'm going, I, 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 he just couldn't take it. So he just, he just didn't go back. He didn't want to know what was behind those walls of that house. How does an expert builder build? To last? A good foundation. That's actually what we're going to talk about in the verses to come. You see, a non-expert builder, a less-than-expert builder, is very eager to get walls up. Why? Because you see walls. He wants to see a roof. He wants to see, he wants to see the facade. So he tends to cut corners. He tends to be much quicker in getting that stuff out of the way that you're never really going to see anyway. I mean, let's face it, except for, you know, those inches around the outside of the house, you don't really see the foundation of a house. In a building, you don't see the foundation at all. You know, who sees all those piers that are sunk once you cover them all up? So let's not worry too much about that. And let's get on to the important stuff, which is the stuff that you can see. As an expert builder, Paul is interested in those things that might not be as visible, but he knows are of ultimate importance in the Christian life. Pardon? Solid. So what is the analogy to the Christian life? How many times are we very interested in those aspects of the Christian life that are very visible? You know, we had 10,000 people come to our rally. What's the depth of those 10,000 people? Oh, don't ask such silly questions. We begin to be interested in those areas, those aspects of the Christian life that are most visible. We know one group that was very interested in that, not as Christians, but as Jews. The Pharisees were very interested in those aspects of the Christian life, excuse me, the Jewish life, that were most visible to the community. Why? Because it made them look good. It made them feel good. So Jesus referred to them as what? Whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside. They had a good facade. But inside there was nothing but death. And that's what happens. So what else does an expert builder do? Builds a good foundation. Builds things to last. Builds things according to a plan. A good builder thinks about what they're going to do before they start building. I mean, have you ever seen kids build a treehouse? You start with wood, you start with hammers, and you start with nails, and you start putting wood together, hoping that some structure comes out of it. I mean, you've seen this, right? It's kind of like, well, you know, if you can nail a nail... Why think about where the next one's going to go? A good builder has an idea, a vision, a plan in mind of what they're going to build. I remember when we built our 
house that we live in now. You know, we had all kinds of people telling us how hard it was going to be building a house. You know, oh, there's so much stress. It was actually a lot of fun. And, but I think one of the things that helped is we had a lady in our church who did the plans for us, and she had a very detailed set of plans. There really wasn't any question about what the builder was going to build on any given day. Because we had a set of plans of where we were going to go. Back to the analogy of the Christian life. What is the plan that should be followed for the Christian life? This should be an easy question. Hmm? I'm holding it. Oh, the Bible. The Bible describes to us how we ought to live our Christian life, how we ought to live a life that's pleasing to God. This is the foundation, this is the plan of what we're supposed to do. Without a question. Her comment is that we are to treat others with fairness and respect. But why? Why would we treat people with fairness and respect? Because the Bible says to. Okay? It isn't like this idea of treating people with respect just popped up out of the blue. It came from somewhere. The world wants to deny where it came from, but that's their problem. It's like an article I was reading this week out of uh, psychology today about marriage. And uh, it actually was a fairly good article, and I was kind of surprised. You know, a very secular magazine talked about the evolution of marriage and all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, they ended up in the right place. You know, marriage involves commitment and staying with it and that kind of thing. And I'm sitting there going, you know, they want to deny all the foundations of Christianity, but they can't help ending up in the right place. Why? Because that's what works. That's what's right. So Paul is an expert builder. He's going to lay a good foundation. He's going to work according to a plan. He is going to select the right materials. We're going to talk about materials here in a moment. To build something. And what he's building is us. What we are building is us as the community. We are building the temple of Christ, which as we're going to see in just a moment, is in fact you and I. That is the building that is being built. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Um... Does that strike anybody as just a little bit arrogant that he calls himself an expert builder? No. Why? Where did that expertise come from? By the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am able to do this, but only because of the grace of God. It isn't, I'm a great guy, I'm smarter than you are, I'm better looking than you are. In fact, he's pretty clear, clear in the rest of the book, you know, I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't come to you to try to impress you with how great I am. I came to impress upon you what Christ has done for us. By the grace of God, I'm an expert builder. 
Someone else is building on the foundation. And that is the key that he's trying to explain in this chapter. Somebody plants the seed. Somebody waters the seed. Somebody plants the foundation. Somebody else builds on that foundation. It is an effort of many people in the lives of unbelievers bringing them to a belief in Jesus Christ and in the life of believers bringing them to maturity. We should not get wrapped up in who gets the credit for putting which two-by-four into which side of the house. We should all praise the fact that the building is being built. Go ahead, Ken. That's, a, that's good. But the difference is, is that there's lots of builders in your life. It's not just you. You're certainly part of it. You know, we, we make this distinction, and we've had it in here before. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to justification, that is totally a work of Jesus Christ. You don't contribute anything to it. Why not? Because you can't. There's nothing that you as a sinful human being could contribute to merit God's salvation. It is totally a work of God. But when it comes to us maturing, when it comes to us being sanctified, you run into two different problems. One problem is thinking it's all up to me, and you work, 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 and you become a good Pharisee. The other problem is you think it's all up to God, so you sit at home in your easy chair with your remote watching TV, wondering why God's not maturing you. The reality is it is both of us working together. It is us doing what God has given us the strength to do. It is God, hmm, causing the growth. Some plant, some water, God causes the growth. Sometimes we are the building, sometimes we are the builder, sometimes, but it doesn't matter. God is causing the growth. So, Paul, the expert builder, laid the foundation and someone else is building on it. And Paul's point is, that's the way it's supposed to be. Because this congregation is getting bent out of shape. Because I have builder Paul, you have builder Apollos, you have builder Cephas, you have builder Billy Graham, you have builder this and that and the other. And Paul goes, why do you care? As long as God is getting the glory and the temple is being built. Why do you care? Yes, Gail. Well, there's a danger even today. Mm-hmm. And we had a discussion after class last week, actually, about, you know, in class we discussed how do you know if you're not following a person 
versus following Jesus Christ. Obviously, you know, individuals lead us to Christ. Individuals help us mature, and we should be grateful for them. We should thank them for it. We should honor them. You know, and the scripture says that a pastor's worthy of the of his pay. But how do you know when you've gotten over that and you are in fact following Christ? It doesn't mean that you get arrogant and snooty toward that person who helps you. One way of knowing it is, unfortunately, and this is a bad situation, but it does happen. You know, we've had instances where pastors or uh, authors that we really liked fell into some sin. Well, when your pet author falls into sin, very visible, obvious sin, does your faith collapse with it? If it does, then you've been following a person and you haven't been following Jesus Christ. Now, we mourn, we're saddened, we're concerned, but you know the reality is that pastor, that minister, that author, no matter how great they are, they're sinful human beings just like you and me. Just like you and me. They're going to sin, we're going to sin, but God remains faithful. We need to move beyond where our growth is totally dependent upon some individual. That does not mean we discredit them. That doesn't mean we're cynical toward them. It simply means they're a servant of God, we're a servant of God, and we grow together for the glory of God, not toward the glory of Pastor XYZ. But each one should be careful how he builds. Careful how he builds. Careful, full of care. Why? Why should we be careful? If it's all grace, why not just get some two-by-fours, some nails and a saw and a hammer and start banging things together and just trust God that it will all come out in the end? Like the young boys building the treehouse. We're just going to slap this sucker together and God will take care of it. Because God has given us direction. God has given us what we ought to do. And just random activity doesn't produce the building, the life, the growth, the maturity that God wants us to have. Activity, effort, in and of itself doesn't produce maturity. Effort and activity guided by God and directed by the plan produces maturity. Hmm. I can sit here and I can tell you how to grow in your Christian life. Okay? I really can. It really isn't that complicated. Christians have known it for 2,000 years. You read your Bible. You meditate on your Bible. You attend worship services. You do acts of service to others. You pray without ceasing. 
and we can add a few more to the list. We know what needs to be done. But the truth is, I'm, I'd rather go do something else. So if I go do something else, and I say a prayer at the end of it, won't that do the same thing? No, it won't. Why? Because we're not being careful how we build on the foundation. The church at Corinth had dissensions, they had jealousies, they had fights going on amongst themselves. And Paul is telling them, you're not being careful. You're being too chaotic in how you build on the foundation that I, the expert builder, have put down for us. For no one, verse 11, can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Breakfast must be over. <laughs> What'd they serve you? Very good. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of those literary statements that, you know, it's in the Bible. It's got to be true. But the truth is, there's lots of things you can try to build a foundation on. But what he's saying is, it's not going to be a very good foundation if the foundation is not Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you can build on with any chance of success other than Jesus Christ. Remind ourselves from the Sermon on the Mount. You're all very familiar with this story. Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of his teaching. Great stuff. My favorite passage in the Bible. He finishes all of this and he says, you've heard the word. You've been sitting here for three chapters hearing it. Okay? You've heard the word. The question is, what are you going to do about it? The wise builder, the wise individual, is the one who takes my word and puts it into practice. He is like the person who builds the house, the foundation, on the rock, on the firm foundation. And when the storms of life come, what is the implication? The storms will come. The storms will come. When the storms of life come, that house stands. The foolish builder is the one who hears the word but doesn't put it into practice. They are like the person who builds on their foundation on the sand. When the storms come, what's the implication? The storms are going to come. That house falls, and it is a great fall. So, back to 1 Corinthians. I have built on a foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of the Christian life. If you are going to be saved, if you 
are going to be a believer, it will be because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Back up a chapter. What did Paul say? I didn't come to you to teach you fancy words. I came to you only wanting to know about Christ and Christ crucified. That is the foundation of the Christian life. Having laid that foundation, when Paul was at Corinth for a couple of years, preaching, teaching, living with the people, he laid the foundation of a belief in Jesus Christ. This whole book is directed toward the church at Corinth. And for the most part, he's telling them, you're all believers. You have all accepted Jesus Christ. But a lot of you are building pretty silly stuff on top of this foundation. That's my translation. Now, there's a few of them in there that he's not real sure about. But for the most part, he's telling them, you have the foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Just a question that I thought was interesting. What other foundations do people try to build their lives on? Works? Themselves? Money, career, knowledge, personal happiness, selfish ambition, other men's philosophies, which would have been very prevalent in Corinth. There's all kinds of things that you can try to build your life on. I've said it here before, Francis Schaeffer used to say, that modern Western society is built on two things, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace is I want to be left alone. Affluence is I want enough toys to enjoy myself while I'm being left alone. Okay? That's what we want. What's fascinating to me is how much the church has bought into that. You know, accept Christ and you'll have personal peace and affluence. No, you won't. There's nothing in the scripture that says you're going to get personal peace and affluence if you accept Jesus Christ. He bids you come and die. The foundation that works, the only foundation that has any chance of success is the foundation of Jesus Christ. But... What do we build on that foundation? Verse 12. <clears throat> if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. I go out and I lay a foundation. I lay a good foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. I put the cornerstone down. I build a good foundation. I have a nice, flat, strong, sturdy structure. What do I build on top of that structure? The implication is I can build a 
gold palace. I can build a wooden structure. I can go collect sod and build a sod hut. I can build lots of things on this foundation. But are they all equally right? And how would I know? How would I know whether this structure that I've built is the correct structure or not? How would I know if it follows the plans? How do I know? Well, what he tells us is eventually everybody's going to know. Eventually, there's going to be a trial by fire. A consuming fire that burns up all that which is not built according to God's plan. If you look at the Christian world today, and I use that word Christian in the broadest sociological sense you can imagine. You talk to anybody and you say, are you a Christian? And they so, say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Did you know that there are atheists out there who if you ask them, are you a Christian, they'll say, sure. Why? Well, Jesus Christ was a good guy, you know. He's right up there. I mean, I had a humanities professor one time say, yeah, you know, Jesus Christ and Socrates, the great, two greatest men ever lived, and uh, society killed both of them. Yeah, I, you know, I, I like Christ. You have people who claim to be Christians and, you know, believe some of the Bible. Yeah, there's a few verses in there that I really like. The rest of it, I'm not sure about. There is a huge span of what passes for being Christian in the Western world today. A huge span. How do we know what is right? Why are we arrogant enough to think that we're right and someone else is wrong? Well, ultimately, it'll be obvious. But even today, we can make that determination based on are they following the plan or are they not? Are they living their lives according to Scripture or are they living their lives according to something else, the current pop psychology, philosophy, spirit of the age, whatever you want to call it, are they doing that and simply labeling it, oh, I'm building on the foundation? Ultimately, it will be obvious. Today, sometimes it's not as obvious. Now, I believe if we study the scripture, it's a lot more obvious than we think it would be. Yes? Mm-hmm. How'd you answer?
<laughs> yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Right. <laughs> no, no telling what wacko things you would do if you if you told them you were a Christian, right? We'll get to that in just a moment. I hope. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. We're going to talk in just a moment about self-deception, deceiving ourselves into thinking we're doing what is right when we're really not. We need to recognize the fact that ultimately there is going to be a test. Ultimately, there is going to be a teacher who's going to grade the test. Ultimately, there's going to be a right answer and a wrong answer. And this just flies in the face of everything that we're taught by the world today. Ultimately, there's going to be a judgment. That scares the bejeebers out of us. Actually, it probably doesn't scare the bejeebers out of us enough because we have bought into this idea that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you do it sincerely. No, you can believe the wrong thing very sincerely. You can believe the wrong thing and go down the wrong path and build the wrong structure on a good foundation and you can end up with something that will not survive the test, will not survive the fire. Um, yes? Uh, I think maybe that the building of the ark in the Old Testament is a perfect example of what you're saying. In what way? In the way that God gave every instruction on the wood to use, how many stories to use hmm? in making it, and how to put it together with tar, pitch, etc., etc. If they hadn't have followed that exactly, it would not have withstood the flood. That's right. Throughout the scripture, we see God in the ark. We have the uh, tabernacle where God gives very specific instructions on how to do something. They had the Ark of the Covenant, and they had very specific instructions on how to build it and how to transport it. And one time, it was on a cart, started to fall off, and the nice, religious, spiritual priest trying to protect the honor of God put his hand up to stop it, and he dropped dead. And we go, why, why, why? He was trying to protect the Ark of God. He disobeyed. He wasn't supposed to touch it. And you know what? They weren't supposed to be carrying it on a cart. They were supposed to be carrying it on poles as God had prescribed. But you know what? When it gets right down to it, a cart, poles, what's the difference? Life and death in this particular case. 
we begin to think that God doesn't care and whatever you build, as long as you build it sincerely, more power to you. If you want to be a spiritual or a mystic or a Wiccan or a whatever it is you want to be, well, if that makes you feel good, go ahead. God wants you to be happy. No, he doesn't. He wants you to be holy. Let's keep reading. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. Here we have the recognition that as believers, we will receive rewards in heaven. We're not going to have a long discussion about this. We could have a lengthy discussion about it, but we're not going to. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. This is where we know that we're talking to a group of believers here. These are people who have the foundation. Uh, Paul came to Corinth. He laid the foundation of Jesus Christ. And they said, yes. And after Paul left, they took this foundation and they started building all kinds of things on it. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Your house is consumed in fire. You have no time to get anything out of it except you and your children, and you leap out of the flame. You are saved. But everything you thought was valuable, everything you thought was precious, was burned up except you and your family. The fire will reveal what is important, what will last, and what won't. Now, the Scripture tells us what is important. The Scripture tells us what will last. The Scripture will tells us how we are to build our lives. What will last the souls that accept Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Word of God that grows in our hearts, those things will last. Will that money, will that power, will that career, will that influence, will... No. That's not what's important. That is not what is important. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now, one thing we need to remember about this passage, that you in this passage, you are God's temple, that's a plural. He's talking about the church at Corinth. Now, there are passages in the Bible that clearly teach us in the New Testament that you individually are God's temple. And there are passages that tell us that we collectively are God's temple. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. What he's talking about here is we collectively are the temple of God. And we individually are the temple of God. What does that mean? We're not into temples these days. You know, we're just not into that, that structure anymore. The temple 
of God was only important because that's where God was. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 6 or 7 or 8. It takes several chapters there. Solomon builds the temple. David had wanted to. God said, no, let your son do it. Solomon built the temple. Then the next chapter, Solomon dedicates the temple. This huge ceremony. And then in the next chapter, there's two verses that simply say, the glory of God descended on the temple, and that's where God was. What does that mean? That means you don't have barbecues at the temple. It means you don't go there for your own amusement. It means you don't go there to do just anything because God is there. We have to understand that or we can't appreciate why Jesus was so upset when he comes to the temple and they're using it as a marketplace, buying and selling things for the sacrifices. You know, Jesus was a pretty patient guy. Jesus was a real loving guy around the kids and around repentant sinners. But he gets to his house, his father's house, and they are doing things that shouldn't be done there, and it's break out the whips, we're getting you out of here. Why? Because this is where God is. That temple is destroyed. That temple is gone. It is no more. But we are that temple. We are that temple. So the question is, if we really understood that, if we really believed that we were the temple of God, how different would our lives look? All the things, all the lust and passions and garbage that feel, fills our lives, would they be there? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? But he goes on to talk about those who are out to destroy God's temple. What he's talking about in this particular case are those people in the church who are spreading the quarrels, who are spreading the dissensions, who are trying to mess with God's temple. And God says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. There's vengeance coming. You know, we've used this line in here before. God used the Babylonians to punish the Jews because the Jews had abandoned God. And then God punished the Babylonians because they enjoyed it too much, because they destroyed God's temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. Sacred, what does that mean? Holy, set apart. 
There are things that you do in the temple and there are things you don't do in the temple because the temple is holy and set apart for God and his purposes. And you are that temple. Do not deceive yourself. If anyone think of you thinks that he is wise by the standards of the age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. He returns to the theme of the last chapter, which is the distinction between the wisdom. Actually, it was started in chapter one. The distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. There is a wisdom of this world, but it's foolish to God. There is a wisdom of God, but it is foolish to this world. And he's telling the church at Corinth, why are you trying to fit in to both worlds? What did he say at the beginning of this chapter? I have truth I want to share with you, but I can't because you are still worldly. You are still trying to impress the world. If you are trying to impress the world, it's not going to work. What you have to do is you have to back up and become a fool. Now, is he really saying for you to become a fool in the sense of Proverbs where it says the fool says in his heart there is no God? No, what he's saying is you need to be willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world so that you can learn to be wise in the eyes of God. What is it that believers believe that the world thinks is foolish? That Christ is the only way. Creation. The second coming. The virgin birth. In fact, miracles in general. I had a guy tell me one time, you know, the Bible's pretty good, except for all those miracles in there. You know, those are just foolish. The mere fact that you would build your life on this book is considered foolish. The editor of uh, Newsweek magazine had an editorial, and he said, you know, only a, a foolish person... That's my word, not his. His words wasn't any nicer, though. Would make a position based on some verse out of the Bible. He was talking about the homosexual uh, agenda today. Homosexual marriage is actually what he's dealing with. He said, we shouldn't bother talking to people who base their thoughts on the Bible. That is not intellectually tenable to believe something just because the Bible says it's true. All of these things are foolish to the world. So the question is, are you willing to be a fool? You know, we like to think that I can reach this spot where the world thinks I'm brilliant and Christ thinks I'm brilliant, and I'm in. You're probably not going to reach that spot. 
you're probably not going to get to the place. So the question is, are you willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world in order to be wise in the eyes of God? Let's finish this up. So then, no more boasting about men. No more arguing about, I'm a follower of Paul, therefore I'm better than you, who are a mere follower of Apollos. Forget it. Just put it out of your mind. All things are yours. All things, everything that you need for your salvation and for your spiritual growth, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. I'm going to take care of all of that. Why? Why? Here's the verse you need to memorize. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Why are you worrying about being of Paul, being of Apollos, being of Billy Graham, being of fill-in-your-blank with your favorite person. We have all of that. We have the teachings of all these people available to us. But what is even more astounding is we have Christ. We are a part of Christ, and Christ is God. And you're arguing about whether you're following Paul, and that's Paul talking. This is Paul talking and saying, You think it's a big deal that you're a follower of me? You're ignoring, you're ignoring what you really have, which is Christ. Conclusions. We are to build our lives on Christ because there is no other foundation. What we build on that foundation will be judged. Some things will survive. Some things won't. We are God's temple. Live like it. Don't be deceived. We can have the world's wisdom or God's wisdom, but not both. But here is the most important thing. All we need for salvation is ours because we are of Christ. And Christ is of God. And you know what? This is foolishness to the world. Why? Why do I need Christ? What does it mean to be of Christ? Why do... This is foolishness. But to those who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have provided for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.